how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Acts Part 2. Well, now you remember I said there are two levels at which we uh, look at a book in the Bible. There's the human level, looking at the author and why he wrote it, and there is the level of the divine editor who wanted us to have it. So we begin with the original meaning, what I've called a historical meaning, and then we go on to what I've called the existential meaning of a book. What has it got to say to us? But too many people want to do the second first, and it's a mistake. We first find out what the book meant originally to the people for whom it was intended, and only then do we ask, what has it to say to us? Otherwise you can get into all kinds of weird and wonderful meanings. I remember somebody writing to ask me, he was thinking of buying a supermarket in Birmingham as a, an evangelistic coffee bar outreach, and he wrote and said, I have been asking the Lord to guide me, and I have found a verse in the Bible which says, I have much blessing in store for you. <laughs> and he said, the Lord really spoke to me through this verse, do you think this is adequate guidance? And I'm afraid I wrote back and said, if that's all you've got, that's quite inadequate. But you see, he was seeing a meaning that was just never there originally. And I'm afraid we're always doing this if we're not careful. First step is to find the original historical meaning. Then we can ask, now what does that have to say to us existentially today? Well now, problems arise with the book of Acts when we do that. And the basic uh, problem is this. Of course, the book invites us to compare the church today with the church then, doesn't it? That's the immediate reaction you have. Well, I wish our church was like that. Mind you, if you look closely, it wasn't perfect. They had their arguments and they had their divisions and they had their mistakes. Nevertheless, it was a, a church full of life and power and the Holy Spirit seemed to be directing it instead of the human leaders. But we need to distinguish first the bad from the good. There are bad things in the early church as well as good. Don't be idealistic. There's a romanticism that says, if only we were just like the early church. Well, there were bad things there. There's Ananias and Sapphira. I was once asked in a preacher's uh, pastor's seminar, do you believe in being slain in the Spirit? And I said, of course I do, it's biblical. Ananias and Sapphira were slain in the Spirit. And I said, if you want the experience, all you need to do is tell a lie about how much you put in the offering, be sure to have Simon Peter as your pastor, and you too can be slain in the Spirit. And he wasn't interested after that. But you see, there is an example of something bad. But my, I wonder what would happen in church today if Simon Peter started looking at what was put in the offering. Then there's Simon, you know, Simon who tried to buy the Holy Spirit with money and Peter said, to hell with you and your money. That's a literal translation of, may your money perish with you. He said, you have no lot or part in this if you think money can buy anything from God. So we've got some bad examples as well as good ones, not to copy those. And above all, the hero of modern ecclesiastical diplomats is a man called Gamaliel, who nailed his colours firmly to the fence, which some others do as well. And Gamaliel said, let's wait and see if this is of God, it'll last, if it's not of God, it'll fade away, which sounds like really good wisdom, doesn't it? 
you'd never hear of Gamaliel again. He has no further part in God's purpose. Those who sit on the fence, the wait-and-see boys, God has no use for. Whereas Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who was Gamaliel's student, Gamaliel was a professor and he taught Saul of Tarsus. Saul said, I'm not going to wait and see. I'm going to kill this thing dead. I'm going to put their people in prison. And the result is Paul, greatest apostle and missionary we've ever had. So you see, don't be discouraged by hostility. There's always more hope for someone who's against you than someone who's indifferent. And Gamaliel, the wait and see. Don't copy Gamaliel. They had rivalries, they had arguments, they had hypocrisies, they had immoralities, they had heresies. They had all that. So don't romanticize. The early church was a mixture of good and bad and were not to copy or imitate or follow the bad. We're to learn from their mistakes and try to avoid them. Problem with history is that history repeats itself. It has to because no one listens. That's a little poem of Jeffrey Stevenson's. But uh, we need to learn from the past and the bad past as well as the good. The second thing is we need to distinguish between the abnormal and the normal. There were certain things that happened in the book of Acts which were abnormal and should not be expected to happen every time. Paul's conversion was a one-off. We should not use that as a paradigm or pattern for modern conversions. It was unique and Paul claimed it was. He said, last of all, the Lord appeared to me. He never expected anyone else to have the experience he had on the Damascus Road. Unfortunately, it's become a kind of pattern for Christian conversion. It's not at all. It's a unique event and it qualified Paul to write scripture, which no conversion has ever done since. It was the last of all of that kind of apostolic conversion. We get such questions as, why don't the buildings shake in our prayer meeting? Well, they may or they may not, but that's not a model to follow. I have been in one meeting about the same size as this and not too far from here and I made the mistake of closing my eyes in the prayer time and so others had to tell me afterwards and somebody sent me a, an advertisement from a women's magazine, Cookability Gas or something with a ring of flames. He said, that's the nearest I can show you to what happened. When we were praying, there was a tongue of fire on each person's head in that meeting. It's the only time it's happened in my ministry, but I don't expect it to happen. It is an unusual thing and we're not to say if it doesn't happen, people haven't been baptised in the Spirit. Uh, the way Peter was saved from Herod, but James wasn't. So which one should we expect to happen today? See. We must beware of taking one event or one experience of the church as a whole or of the early church and making that a norm. I just put that in as a guard. How do we distinguish between what's abnormal once upon a time and what's normal for us to expect today? I'll give you three guidelines. First of all, if a thing is mentioned only once and never repeated, the likelihood is it's unusual at least, if not abnormal. If it is repeated more than once, then it begins to look like being normal. For example, tongues. On the day of Pentecost, the wind and the flames, they're never repeated, but the tongues certainly are many times. So it begins to look as if there's a normality there. But the final deciding factor B, 
should be that there is an external confirmation elsewhere in Scripture, in the Gospel or the Epistles, for example, that confirms that that is a normal part of Christianity. Does that give you a few guidelines? So when you read the book of Acts, don't say, oh, well, everything we read here ought to be happening today. That might be a wrong conclusion. But nevertheless, there is a model there and there are things that are not just mentioned once but repeatedly mentioned. Baptism in water, for example. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that that is part of normal Christianity and should be part of everyone's experience. So having said that, let's treat Acts now as a model for us. Well, no, even before that, let's see that it is in fact a link between the Gospels and the Epistles. Without the book of Acts we would lose a great deal of understanding because things are mentioned in the Gospels in the Epistles without ever being defined or described and we only know what they mean because of what we read in the book of Acts. Let's look at some of those things. First of all, most of the letters of the New Testament are from Paul, but who's Paul? Without the book of Acts you'd know nothing about him, very little indeed. And yet it's vital to know who Paul was to understand his letters and the book of Acts gives us that vital information about Paul. Try and imagine your New Testament without the book of Acts if you can. You'd be astonished at how much you now fail to understand. Secondly, baptism in water. It is not described or defined elsewhere except in the book of Acts. See? Now Paul frequently is in his letters says, don't you know that when you were baptised, you were baptised into his death. But Paul actually never links the word baptised with the word water, never. And some scholars have therefore tried to argue that Paul did not teach water baptism. That when he said baptised into Christ, he was speaking about something purely spiritual. But when you come to the book of Acts, you find that Paul was himself baptised in water and baptised others in water. So we know that when he talks about baptism in his letters, he's talking about baptism in water. Or take the phrase baptised in the Spirit. Now that phrase occurs in all four Gospels, but none of the Gospels tells you what actually it means or what it happens when somebody is. And so you would never know from the Gospels what baptised in Spirit means. Likewise, in the epistles you've got that same phrase. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 12. Don't you know you were all baptised in one Spirit into one body? But he doesn't tell you what it means. It's only from the book of Acts that you know what it is to be baptised in the Holy Spirit. And that is why Pentecostals put such emphasis on the book of Acts because otherwise you have no idea what that phrase means. So it's a vital link for us. Or take this whole matter of the law of Moses. How do we know that we Christians are not under the law of Moses? And I spoke to you earlier when we dealt with Matthew, I'm breaking the law of Moses with these clothes that I'm wearing. But it doesn't worry me, I'm not confessing it, I'm not asking forgiveness for it. The law of Moses had 613 different requirements and I don't feel bound by them. Now how do I know that I'm free of those laws, that I'm not under them? I wouldn't know except for the book of Acts and the great argument that went on about circumcision that reached a climax in Acts 15 when it was settled once and for all 
that Christians are free from the law of Moses. So that the very word church, how do we know what church refers to? It's only in the book of Acts that you've got a picture of how churches were planted around the world and what a church is and how they went back to appoint elders in every city. So a church needs elders and we would know very little about the church or local churches without this book of Acts. It is so important. Well, I think I've made the case. Without the book of Acts we really would be in the dark. It's the link between the Gospels and the Epistles, it's also the link between Christ and his church. As someone has said, it's written on location, which I think is a lovely phrase. It was written by someone who said, I was there when the churches were planted around the Mediterranean. I saw how they did it, what was necessary and so on. If I may say, my basic thesis in this book, The Normal Christian Birth, I got my understanding of the new birth from the book of Acts and without the book of Acts that book could not have been written but I'm afraid some of the reviewers criticise it for that precise reason. And they tell me I shouldn't build doctrine on the book of Acts. I say, why not? It's part of the Word of God. It's only in the book of Acts that you find out how Paul counselled inquirers. The letters and the book of Revelation are written too late to tell you how to become a Christian because they're all written to people who are already Christian. But in the book of Acts you find out how people after Pentecost become Christian. And for example, no one after Pentecost became a Christian without being baptised in water. Before the death and resurrection of Jesus, people did. The dying thief did. Zacchaeus did. But after Pentecost, after the first Easter and Pentecost, Nobody but nobody was born again without repenting for their sins, believing in the Lord Jesus, being baptised in water and receiving the Holy Spirit. And that's the basic teaching of this book. And those four spiritual doors, as I call them, into the kingdom are clear in Acts. Once you've seen that, you go back to the Gospels and you find that John the Baptist and Jesus mentioned all four but separately. And you find that the letters mention all four, but separately. The only place in the letters they're put together is in Hebrews 6, where the author talks about the fundamentals of Christianity, the elements, and he talks about repentance from dead works and faith and baptisms and having the laying on of hands for the receiving of the Spirit. So you see, I learned all that from the book of Acts. Without the book of Acts, I would not have understood that those four things are all essential elements in being born again today. And I'm afraid there are too many Christians who were badly birthed who haven't had those four things. And no wonder they have problems later. So many of our later problems go back to a bad birth. Well, all right, that's a bit of a commercial for that book, but. What I'm really saying is, without the book of Acts, I would not have understood that. And without the book of Acts, I'd have come back to three or even two or even just one of those things. But in the book of Acts, Paul goes through them all. He comes to Ephesus, finds those disciples of John. He said, did you receive spirit when you believed? No, I haven't heard. Oh, what kind of baptism did you have? John's baptism. Oh, 
So you haven't believed in Jesus yet. You've only repented. Oh, well, you have repented. That's good. Then he told them about Jesus until they believed in him. Then he baptized them in water. Then he laid hands on them so that they would receive the Spirit. Do you see his, his method of dealing with inquirers was to find out how many of the four things they had and make up what was missing as quickly as possible. Now, I learned all that from the book of Acts. Without the book of Acts, I just could not have learned that. Once I'd learned it, I found all four in the Gospels and all four in the Epistles. So the book of Acts was my door into the New Testament because it's the only book really about evangelism. And that is why it is a model for us today. It's a missionary manual. I'm sorry I got all this out of order. That shows you how disordered I am, but we're, we're getting there. It's a link between the Gospels and the Epistles and it's a model for our work today. But don't model yourself on the bad only on the good. Learn from their mistakes. and Don't model it on the abnormal, but learn what is normal and what was intended to be part of everybody's experience. Now, having said that, we can learn so much. In 1961, I went to be the pastor of a Baptist church in a little place called Chalfonson Peter in Buckinghamshire. And when I got there, I was intrigued to learn about a vicar who wouldn't do babies who wouldn't baptize babies. And it was so interesting to hear that a vicar wouldn't that I said, uh, you know, is he still around? No, he left here about 50 years ago. <laughs> and in fact, he left in 1910 and his name was Roland Allen. And this dear man had been the vicar in Chalfon St. Peter then. He was actually a prophet. There's a picture of him. I owe as much in my thinking to this man as anybody you know how certain men open up truth to you? You don't follow them infallibly, they're not the Pope, but they've just opened a whole, you know, they've opened a whole page of God's Word for you, a whole new vista. Now, Roland Allen, way back in 1910, finally realized he shouldn't be baptizing all the babies in the parish. And he refused, he lost his living, he never got another, and he retired to Kenya and spent his days writing books which are now compulsory reading for every missionary. I've yet to meet a missionary who hasn't heard of Roland Allen. He died in obscurity, but he said, my books will not be appreciated for another half century. And he wrote his books in 1910. They were all published, I've got all his three major volumes here, published in 1960. And he was a prophet. And the first one he wrote was Missionary Methods St. Paul's or ours. Have any of you heard of that book? Nobody. Ah dear, Kim, you've heard of it. Well, he was a missionary in China actually for years and then came home and wrote these. And he says, why don't we use St. Paul's methods, they're much cheaper in money terms, of planting self-governing, self-propagating and self-supporting churches. He said, how could Paul do it without a missionary society, without a whole raising of money for it? How could he just go and do it? Well, then why don't we use his methods? And he began to think. And then he wrote a second book and realized that Paul would plant a church and leave that church to evangelize the area. And so he wrote a second book, The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church. He still felt, I haven't understood the secret yet. And he finally did, and he wrote a third book, the ministry of the Spirit and prophesied the charismatic renewal of the churches. Isn't that interesting? 1910. This man was years before his time 
a real prophet, unlike most prophets, died in obscurity, misunderstood and hardly known in his lifetime. But now, if you want a summary of his writings in just one book, it's been produced here by Peter Noster in small form, The Compulsion of the Spirit, a Roland Allen reader, which gives us selections from his writings, including the amazing letter he wrote to the parish of Charles and Peter resigning over the question of baptism. That man has influenced me profoundly. But you know, almost all those books are based on the book of Acts. That was the book he rediscovered and it was the insights of Acts. He was a high Anglican and he writes in old-fashioned Victorian language, but when you get behind that, he really saw in the book of Acts a model for the church to follow today and he has revolutionised the thinking of most missionaries. Well, you ought to have heard about him. Never mind. <laughs> what I'm saying is he got it from the book of Acts. So let's look into Acts and see how did they spread the gospel, evangelise the then known world so quickly, so efficiently. The growth of the early church is the most astonishing phenomenon. They had nothing of what we have. They had no radio, they had no television, they didn't raise a whole lot of missionary funds, they didn't have missionary headquarters or societies, they just did it. So how did they do it? And I've written down seven things that they did. Number one, they sent apostles. Now I believe we still need apostles today. The word means sent ones. The church kept saying, who can we send? Who can we get rid of? <laughs> now we tend to say, who can we get? You know, who can we get? And they sent their best people. They didn't try and keep their best people. They said they needed elsewhere and they sent apostles. Now there are five kinds of apostles in the New Testament. There's Jesus, the chief apostle, there's no one like him today. There are the twelve apostles, the witnesses of the resurrection, no one like them today. There is Paul, number thirteen, the last of all born out of due time, no one like him today writing scripture as he wrote scripture. And yet he also wore another hat. He was an apostle of the fourth kind, a pioneer church planter who didn't build on other man's foundations, didn't start a new church by pinching Christians from other fellowships. He built new churches with new converts. And the fifth kind of apostle was Epaphroditus who was sent to be Paul's housekeeper in Rome. And any Christian sent from A to B to do anything is an apostle. So an apostle is nothing special. Let's get rid of this aura. But that fourth and fifth kind are needed today. We need to send Christians. I'm afraid most often today the people themselves come and say, I believe God has called me to go and then hope a church will approve and support. But in the New Testament they said, whom shall we send? And they were constantly thinking, could we send somebody somewhere to do something? They were in the export trade, to put it simply. They weren't all the time on the import line. And Britain used to be the major missionary sending country of the world. America has now taken that role and we are not sending nearly as many. We used to send people all over the world, say go. Now, thank God, the third world is sending missionaries here. Thank God for that. We need them to teach us faith. They may not have the money we've got, but they've got the faith we haven't. And uh, we're going to need sent ones from the third world to come and get us back to where we need to be. So first they sent apostles. Second, they reached cities, didn't go for villages. They looked what was the key centre 
And you know, about 12 years ago, no, a bit more, I was driving past Milton Keynes and the Lord just revealed to me, this is going to be a key centre, whoever holds Milton Keynes will hold England. I really felt that. And the first religious building to go up in Milton Keynes was a Buddhist pagoda by the lake there. And I shared that vision and that burden at Spring Harvest and one result of that vision is there are people who moved into Milton Keynes to plant fellowships. We need to be doing this all the time, seeing where is the key centre. There was the very centre of England, a brand new city right on the motorway link, right there. And just feel that in the New Testament say we must get in there and establish it's a key city. So they reached cities and then let the gospel spread out from the city. And uh, Paul would only go to the key city in any province. Once he got a good church there, he left it to spontaneously expand. He moved on. Thirdly, they preached the gospel. Now when I say that, I notice this, that when they preached to Jews, they quoted the Bible, but when they preached to Gentiles, they didn't. When will we learn? Just throwing at the, the Bible at people, throwing the book at them, doesn't do it. Unless a person recognises the Bible as the Word of God, it doesn't help them to quote it. And when Paul preached to Gentiles, he would quote their, their poets, he would quote their writers, he would quote their buildings. When he went to Athens, he always took a walk around a city before he preached and he walked past all the altars and then he came to an altar to the unknown God. And he asked about it, what, what's the history behind that? The God we don't know. And the history was fascinating. Once upon a time, years before he got there, there was a terrific earthquake that devastated Athens and destroyed their buildings. And they thought, we've upset one of the gods. Which one is upset? Now the problem of worshipping many gods is you don't know which one you've upset. <laughs> Very complicated life when you are a polytheist. And so they said, which one is it? We don't know. Which god have we offended? And so they said, well, let's get some sheep and let them loose in the high street and whichever altar they lie down nearest to, that's the God we've upset and we'll sacrifice the sheep to appease him. <coughs> so the sheep wandered up the high street and passed all the altars and went out into the middle of a field. Sheep are not silly, you know. And <laughs> they, they lay down in the middle of this field and the council met and said, well, we don't know which God we've upset. And one counsellor said, yes, we do. There's another God that we've forgotten and we haven't got an altar to him. And that's why he's upset and that's why the earthquake happened. Well, what can we do? We better build an altar quick. Well, what name shall we put on the altar? Well, we don't know his name, that's the problem. So they put up the altar to the God we don't know. And Paul said, that's where I start preaching here. He said, I've come to tell you the name of the God you don't know. See, if only we'd take the time to start where people are. See, now when they spoke to Jews, they just threw the text after text at them and proved from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they talked to Gentiles, they began where they are. Paul said, as one of your own poets said, we are not far from him. We are his offspring. Or he said, I've come to tell you, you are. God is your creator. See, it began where people were. They preached the gospel, but they adapted the gospel to the people they preached to. That's rather important. They didn't just throw the book at them. They made disciples. They didn't get decisions. 
didn't tell people to lift hands or come to the front or sign a card. They made disciples. And that took time. And usually they stayed as long as they could before they were thrown out. Sometimes Paul would stay three weeks, sometimes two years. In Ephesus, he actually taught disciples every afternoon from twelve till four, every day for two years. That's how he discipled. And the subject of all his teaching was the kingdom. Remember what I told you about Matthew? Paul did that. And he would teach the disciples. When everybody else had a siesta, Paul would make tents all morning. And then when everybody had a siesta from noon till four, Paul was <coughs> discipling and teaching the young converts about the kingdom of God. That was his major subject. We need to make disciples. Next, they planted churches. I believe the big move in Britain is going to be when we plant churches. We need hundreds of new churches, but not made up of Christians pinched from other churches. We need to go out and make our own new churches with our own new converts. We need hundreds of new churches in this Britain. I believe the great breakthrough that's now come, Fred, when I first said it about ten years ago, I was howled down. We've got enough churches. We don't want any more churches. We haven't even got the churches we've got filled. I said the real breakthrough is going to come when we make new churches with new converts. Not just when you look at a flat map of a town and put pins in for all the churches. They've got plenty. But you see, you're just looking at a one plain map, whereas society is in layers. And all those pins may be in one layer. There are whole layers of society where there are no churches. See, Two friends of mine started planting churches among the street kids of Auckland, New Zealand. They've now got two churches of 75 members among the street kids. No churches are objecting to these new churches because they're getting new converts in a new level of society that's not been touched. See, That's the kind of planting churches we need in this country. New churches of new converts. And that's what they did. They formed communities. Next, they appointed elders, and elders were even just twelve months old in the faith, and yet they appointed twelve-month-old Christians as elders, because an elder is simply someone who is ahead of the others. And they used to go back after twelve months and see who was ahead of the others, who'd really gone for it, who was maturing. They said, now you look after the others. We are so slow today at producing elders that we could never cope with a lot of new churches. Do you know what I mean? We wait till somebody's grey-haired and we hope that God will send in some mature elders for us, but we've got to learn how to produce them. And incidentally, one of the ways is to disciple men on their own, as Jesus did. That's another story. So, sending apostles out, reaching key cities, preaching the gospel but adapting it to their hearers, making disciples rather than decisions, staying with them and training them, planting churches so that they left a community behind, not individuals, appointing elders to lead that community. Once they'd done that, the job of an apostle was finished. He might write letters, he might visit, but Paul said to Titus, I left you in Crete to finish the job off by appointing elders in every city. Once a fellowship had local leaders, the apostle should get out of it and move on and not settle down as a bishop. Too many do that. A true apostle will, as soon as that fellowship is established and got its own leadership, he'll say, I want to go and plant new work where no man has ever planted. 
And that was Paul's ambition. As soon as he'd got a work going, off to do some more. There was no static quality. It was dynamic, it was mobile. The church was very mobile in those days. And one of the ways they managed without missionary societies or anything was that the apostles supported themselves. Or, as soon as they got converts, the converts supported them. They didn't have a home base paying them. They were either supported by their own hands or by their converts. That's quite a profound insight which we need to look at. For one thing, missionaries should teach their new converts to give and support the ministry. But so often if they're supported from somewhere else, they don't do that. And as Roland Allen would say, that means that they have to go on being subsidized from somewhere else, which is a vicious circle. So the final seventh thing is move on. <laughs> and the trouble is all of us like settling down. Do you remember when David wanted to build God a stone temple? And uh, that was partly because he'd just built himself a stone palace. And he was a bit guilty that God was still living in a tent next door to his palace. And he said, God, I want to build you a stone palace like I've got. And God said through the prophet Nathan, since when has a tent not been good enough for me? You know, in the Bible, God is a God who walks. Right from the beginning, the sound of the Lord God walking there. And a, a man of God is a man who walks with God. We believe in a mobile God. And when I went into the temple of a thousand Buddhas in Bangkok, I thank God I've got a God who walks. You know, he looks as if he could do with a good walk. <laughs> and we, we've got a God who walks. And if you're going to keep with God, you've got to walk. And even when you get to heaven, don't think you're going to sit in an armchair. You're going to walk with him in white. All right, let's move on quickly. Time is going. I think the thing that comes across to me most in reading the book of Acts is how Trinitarian it is. What should we call the book of Acts? Acts, praxis, from which we get our word practice. This is the practice of Christianity, the acts, the praxis of Christianity. But who is it the practice of? Whose acts? Well, there are four possible answers to that. It's usually called the Acts of the Apostles. I think that's quite misleading because most of the apostles never appear in it. Where are the other ten? Just disappear. It's only about Peter and Paul, really, and a bit about James, the brother of Jesus, but he wasn't one of the twelve. So it's not the Acts of the Apostles, really. It begins by saying the former treatise, O Theophilus, was about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, clearly implying now this volume is about all that Jesus continued doing and teaching. Therefore, we could call it the Acts of Jesus Continued. But when you study it, you find that the most prominent person, at least in the first 13 chapters, is the Holy Spirit, who is mentioned 40 times. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Is that the best title? No. There's somebody even more important. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 40 times in the first 13 chapters, but someone else is mentioned 100 times in the first 13 chapters, and unfortunately, we overlook him. Isn't that strange? But you can be too close to something to see it, or something can be too big to notice it, and it's God who is more mentioned than anyone else in the book of Acts.
and I call it the acts of God. See? Forty times the Holy Spirit, but a hundred times God, God, God. And the focus of the early church was God himself. We must never make even Jesus or the Holy Spirit the focus. You can become Unitarian in a number of ways. We usually use the word of those who believe in only God, but you can be Jesus Unitarian. You can be Jesus only people. The Jesus movement in the States tended to be a Jesus only. And you can be a Spirit only if you're not careful and only talk about the Holy Spirit. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit focuses us on Jesus and Jesus brings us back to God. So my title for the book is, It's the Acts of God Through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in the Apostles. <laughs> All right. And I think that's the best title I can give this book. But if you like, though Trinity is not a word in the New Testament, there are three foci, focal points in the book of Acts. And they are these, the Kingdom of God, the Name of Jesus, and the Power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know the secret of the early church, that's the secret. And the words are very important. What did Philip preach in Samaria that led to the whole city turning to Christ? It says he preached the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. But he backed it up with miracles and the sick were healed. And so those were the three dimensions of his ministry. And I believe we need to use the same three dimensions, word, deed and sign if you like, that they used to impact their society. It is a trinity, but the Kingdom of God, the name of Jesus. I went through the book of Acts underlining the word name. And you know in those first 13 chapters, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 40 times and the name of Jesus is mentioned 40 times. The name, not just Jesus, the name. By what authority are you doing this? We're doing it in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. That was the beggar outside the temple begging for arms, but he got legs. You're not awake. <laughs> All right, I won't repeat it. But such as I have, I give you in the name of Jesus. The early church, thank God, didn't have money for beggars. They didn't have it. They had something better. They could put the beggar on his feet. Silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus get up and walk. There's a classic conversation between a cardinal and a pope in the Middle Ages and they were looking at the treasures in the Vatican, all the gold and the silver. And the cardinal said to the pope, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And the pope said, and the church can no longer say, in the name of Jesus get up and walk. What a conversation. So how did they do it? They did it because they had a clear understanding of the Kingdom of God. They used this name Jesus, not Christ or Lord, Jesus, and they had the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's a pretty combustible combination. It's irresistible. And that's the book of Acts for us today. The constant challenge to get back to these three things, which are the absolute fundamental essentials if we're going to do what the other church did. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.